you would, take your Bible and turn to the book of Ephesians. We will be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. We'll read starting in the beginning of the middle of verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, we believe that Jesus paid it all. We believe that though we had a crimson stain, by his blood, we can be white as snow. And therefore, Lord, we surrender all to you. We surrender all of ourselves, our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions to you, to your will, to your decrees. We trust you, O oh Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If God wills, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, Deo Valente, I will get this new job if God wills. We will have a baby if God wills. I will make it to my flight in time, if God wills. Lord willing, I will get this interview, if God wills, God willing. It's a phrase that we use all the time. We throw it around in our Christian lingo. We use it on Sundays and in care groups. Lord willing, God willing, if God wills. But what do we really mean when we say, if God wills? Can we really understand the will of God? Well, this morning, as we progress in our series on the attributes of God, we will discuss the sovereign or purposeful attributes of God by talking about the will and decrees of God. Now today, over the next 45 minutes or so, we will solve once and for all the problem of evil and man's free will and God's sovereignty, once and for all. Just kidding. We will at least try to give a brief introduction to both of these topics, and we will not solve once and for all, but hopefully we can dive deep into what God has for us this morning with regard to these. Now, right up front, I want to say something very clear. This is a difficult 
topic. When we talk about the will of God, man's free will, the problem of evil, these are difficult topics. And I'll just say it right out, this is probably going to be the most difficult message of this entire series on the attributes of God. But if we can put on our thinking caps over the next 45 minutes or so, and if we can just trust the Holy Spirit, then I believe that God will reveal deep truths to us. So let's get started. Let's first talk about the definition of the will. What is the will? A.W. Pink says, the will is the faculty of choice, the immediate cause of all action. In every act of the will, there is preference, the desiring of one thing rather than another. To will is to choose, and to choose is to decide between alternatives. So the will is the faculty of choice. The will is that part of us which causes us to choose one thing over another. The will is the faculty inside of us that chooses between alternatives. Now, I want to point out something very important, and we must grasp this before we proceed. The will, in and of itself, is not the final determiner. It does not have the final say. The will is simply the faculty of choice. But there are things which influence the will. There are things which feed the will and sway the will and persuade the will. The will is subject to higher faculties like someone's purpose or someone's conscience or someone's nature or character or someone's desire. The will is subject to higher faculties. Jonathan Edwards says in his monumental work on the freedom of the will, the determination of the will supposes an effect which must have a cause. If the will be determined, there is a determiner. It is that motive which, as it stands in view of the mind, is the strongest that determines the will. So Edwards says the will always chooses according to the strongest influence, the strongest desire, the strongest motive. What you desire in that moment will cause the will to choose one thing over another. Pink says the same thing. That which determines the will is that which causes it to choose. If the will is determined, then there must be a determiner. What is it that determines the will? We reply the strongest motive power which is brought to bear upon it. What this motive power is varies in different cases. With one, it may be the logic of reason. With another, the voice of conscience. With another, the impulse of emotions. With another, the whisper of the tempter. With another, the power of the Holy Spirit. Whichever of these presents the strongest motive power and exerts the greatest influence upon the individual himself 
is that which impels the will to act. Your will always chooses according to the strongest inclination. Your will always chooses according to the strongest motive, the strongest influence. Now let's try to illustrate this with this diagram. In this diagram, the will is pictured as the gateway of choice, the faculty of choice, the gateway for decisions. So let's say you woke up this morning and for breakfast you had two options. You could either have an apple, and let's make this really hard. It's not one of those delicious gala apples or Fuji apples. It's one of those sour green apples. And if you like green apples, that's okay. That's your Christian liberty. <laughs> and on the other hand, you could have a donut. And again, to make this really difficult, the donut is a Krispy Kreme donut. But some of you don't like Krispy Kreme, that's okay. One day you will be sanctified <laughs> and come to the knowledge of the truth. But anyway, so you have this choice. Your will is presented with this choice. Should I have an apple or a donut for breakfast? Well, you have to realize that behind your will, you have desire and conscience. Let's say on the one hand, your conscience is telling you to choose this green apple. And on the other hand, your desire is telling you to choose this Krispy Kreme donut. Now, whichever you choose shows which higher faculty is influencing your will. If you choose the apple, your conscience won over your will. If you choose the donut, your desire beat your conscience, and won over your will. So the will is determined by some higher faculty. And in this case, the two faculties of conscience and desire compete with one another. And whichever faculty is strongest in that moment causes your will to choose one thing over another. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Because we always have to grasp this when we talk about man's freedom or man's free will. In theology, this is called the freedom of inclination. A person's will always acts freely. And it is never forced or externally coerced by anything or anyone. But it always acts consistently with his or her own nature. You are free to choose according to your inclinations. Nobody is forcing you to choose the donut over the apple. Nobody's forcing you to choose the apple over the donut. That's your freedom of choice. But you will always choose according to your greatest desire or strongest inclination. The will's choices are always controlled by internal desires. Choices are governed by a person's nature or character. In fact, cho choices are expressions of a person's nature or character. Now, we know this principle very well. In Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus illustrates for us that a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree bears good fruit. The fruit that a person bears is consistent with his nature. Likewise, the choices that a person makes is consistent with his nature. In his book, The Bondage of the Will, Martin Luther showed that for the non-Christian, the unsaved person, their will is not free. Their will is in bondage to sin. That's because the unregenerate person only desires sin. Sin is the only informant of an unregenerate person's will. Remember, the will is influenced. It is persuaded. It is motivated by higher faculties. Well, all of these higher faculties in an unregenerate person are totally depraved. All of the higher faculties are influenced by sin, are in bondage to sin. We have depraved desires, a depraved conscience, depraved purpose, depraved nature, depraved character. The unregenerate person has higher faculties, and all of these higher faculties are in bondage to sin. Titus 3.3 says, that we are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. John 8.34 calls us slaves of sin. Romans 3.12 says there is none who does good, not even one. Now this is why, left to themselves, unbelievers will never choose God. Never. The unregenerate man will never choose God because they do not desire God. The will only chooses according to what it desires, and the unregenerate man does not desire God. Romans 3.11 says there is none who seeks for God. Romans 8.7 says the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Their nature is totally depraved, so how can the unregenerate man ever desire God? How can we ever desire God? Answer, we need a new nature. We need a new nature. Only people who have been born again, who have been regenerated, who have been given a new nature can desire God. Only people who are regenerate, believers, born again by the Holy Spirit with a new nature can love God. Only Christians can choose between sin and righteousness. So that's the will in general. And that will set the framework, the foundation for our discussion on the will of God. Now when we talk about the will of God, We have to understand that in the Bible, we actually see two different aspects to God's will. So we're moving on from the will in general, and now we are speaking about the will of God in specific. And in scripture, there are two different aspects of God's will. There are two wills in God. Now that sounds strange, so I have to clarify, I did not make this up. Secondly, I hope you believe, I hope you know that. (laughs) I did not make this up. And secondly, we do not believe two wills in God because of some theological construct. We believe it because it is found in the Bible. It is found in scripture. Now these two wills in God have been called 
God's will of command versus God's will of decree. It's also called the preceptive will, as in the precepts of God, the rules of God, versus the decretive will. It's also called the revealed will of God versus the secret will of God. And we'll go over all of these. Now, this is a lot of terms. Let's try to boil it down. What do we mean by all of these terms? Well, New Testament scholar I.H. Marshall makes this comment that spells them out very simply. We must certainly distinguish between what God would like to see happen and what he actually does will to happen. And both of these things can be spoken of as God's will. So what God would like to see happen is God's will of command. These are the commandments of God, the precepts of God. But what he actually does will to happen refers to the decrees of God, the will of decree, the decretive will. So on the one hand, we have what God would like to see happen. And on the other hand, we have what God actually wills to happen. Let's look at the will of command, or the perceptive will. The most obvious example of this is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reveal the moral will of God, the moral rules of God, the moral precepts of God. This is how I want you to live, says God. These are my commands. These are my instructions. This is my, my law. This is my moral will. These are my commandments. For instance, 1 John 2.17. The one who does the will of God abides forever. Now, this is obviously referring to obedience to the will of God. Obedience to God's commandments. Obedience to the revealed rules and precepts of God. This is what God would like us to do, what God would like to see happen. Now, this stands in contrast to God's will of decree or God's decretive will. This is what God actually does will to happen. Everything that happens in the history of the world, everything that happens in your life happens by the will of decree, by God's decretive will. So when you say phrases like, if God wills, God willing, Lord willing, I will get this job if God wills. We will have a baby if God wills. When you say phrases like that, you are referring to the will of decree. You are referring to the decretive will of God. Let's look at some examples. James 4.15. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Now, obviously, this is not referring to God's moral rules, God's moral commandments. This is referring to the fact that if God wills, by his will of decree, we will live another day. If God wills, by his will of decree, we will do this or that. Another example. 1 Corinthians 4.19, Paul says, I will come to you soon. If the Lord wills. Paul's saying, I don't know 
if God wants me to come to you. I don't know if God wills for me to come to you, but if he does, it will happen. If God wills for me to come, then I will come. He's obviously not referring to the Ten Commandments here. Now, another way to speak about these two wills in God is God's revealed will versus God's secret will. Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite verses of the Bible. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Now here we have the two wills in God very clearly stated in the same verse. On the one hand, we have the revealed will of God, the law of God, the commandments of God, which we are to observe, which we are to follow, that we may observe all the words of this law. That's the revealed will of God. But on the other hand, we have the secret will of God. The secret things of God belong to God. For instance, who am I to marry? That's not in the law. That's not in the Torah. Should I take this job or not? That's not written in the law. Should I move to this city or not? That's not explicitly spelled out for us in Scripture. Now, the law gives us principles. Scripture gives us principles by which we are to make these decisions. But when it comes to decisions like these, we often feel that God's will is secret because we don't know Should I move to this city or not? We don't know if I should take this job or not. Only after the fact, after something has happened, are we able to say, well, that was God's will. That was God's will. In the moment that we are going through it, we don't know. And so it appears that God's will is secret. So I'd like to borrow this illustration to illustrate the two wills in God. Let's take, for example, John Wilkes Booth assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So on the one hand, we know that it was the will of God that Booth not assassinate Abraham Lincoln. How do we know that? Because in God's words, it says, thou shalt not murder. According to God's revealed will, according to God's will of command, Booth, you should not kill Abraham Lincoln. But on the other hand, we know that it was God's will for Booth to kill Abraham Lincoln. How do we know that? Because it happened. And everything that happens, happens by the will of God. So on the one hand, we can say that by God's will of command, Booth should not kill Abraham Lincoln. But on the other hand, by God's will of decree, Booth did kill Abraham Lincoln. Both are true. Both are God's will. Perhaps the greatest example of the two wills of God is the death of Christ. Now, when you speak of the murder of Jesus Christ, you realize that this is the worst case of murder ever in the history of humankind. Not only to kill a man, but to kill the only innocent son of God, to crucify the Lord of glory. Thou shalt not murder, and this is murder. 
But on the other hand, by the will of decree, God did will for this to happen. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Which will is that? God's will of decree. God willed by his will of decree for his son to die in the place of sinners. Now another example of the two wills of God is in salvation. For instance, look at this, what appears to be a puzzling verse. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires, and the Greek word there is wills, so you could read this, God wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you hear what that says? God wills all men to be saved. Now, which will is this talking about? God's will of command or God's will of decree? He's talking about God's will of command. It's God's commandment that all men should repent and be saved. Acts 17.30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This is God's revealed will. This is God's moral command. This is God's precept. Everybody should repent and be saved. This is what God would like to see happen. However, God does not actually save everyone. Matthew eleven twenty five to 26, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. For such was your gracious will. Which will is this? God's will of decree. By his decree, God reveals his salvation to some and hides his salvation from others. Both are true. Both are God's will. John Piper says, Both Calvinists and Arminians affirm two wills in God when they ponder deeply over 1 Timothy 2, 3-4. Both can say that God wills for all to be saved. But then, when queried why all are not saved, both Calvinists and Arminian answer that God is committed to something even more valuable than saving all. The difference between Calvinists and Arminians lies not in whether there are two wills in God, but in what they say this higher commitment is. What does God will more than saving all? The answer given by Arminians is that human self-determination and the possibility of a resulting love relationship with God are more valuable than saving all people by sovereign, efficacious grace. The answer given by Calvinists is that the greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory in wrath and mercy and the humbling of man so that he enjoys giving all credit to God for his salvation. So in scripture, we see the two wills in God clearly taught. Now in the time remaining, I'd like to focus on the will of decree, otherwise known as the decrees of God, or the divine decrees, or the eternal decrees. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question seven asks, what are the decrees of God? 
Answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. The decrees of God are God's foreordained plan for every single thing that happens in the history of the world. Every every single thing that happens in the history of the world happens by the decree of God. This is God's predetermined blueprint. God has a blueprint for the way history will unfold. And every single thing that happens works out exactly according to that blueprint, which he has foreordained from eternity past. Ephesians 1.11 says, we just read this, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Everything. Now to explore the decrees further, I'd like us to look at the London Baptist Confession, chapter 3, paragraph 1, on God's decrees. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in this further, there's an entire chapter in the Confession on the decrees of God. And we're only going to look at the first half of the first paragraph. That's all we have time for this morning. Confession says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God, neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein. So there are six descriptions here given for the decrees of God. And I want to point out that each of these descriptions is rooted in the character of God, in the attributes of God. So just as we saw that man's will is influenced by some higher faculty, namely his character and his nature, so also God's will is influenced by a higher faculty, which is his character, his nature, and his attributes. God's attributes, God's character, God's nature, God's desires, God's pleasures influence God's will. They persuade God to act and will what he does. Let's look at them. First, the decree of God starts in himself, and he has done so freely. The decrees of God start in the very mind of God, and they are executed by his will. God is entirely free. God is entirely independent of all things, and so his decree is independent of all things. His decree is not conditional on anything or anyone. It's not conditional on you or me or Satan or demons. God did not choose something because someone influenced him or coerced him to do it. The decrees of God find its source in him and him alone. Secondly, the decree is eternal. That is, It has no beginning. Stephen Sharnock, the Puritan, notes that the decrees have existed from all eternity past. Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Now, this is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Try to wrap your mind around this. The decrees of God have existed from all eternity past. There was no beginning 
from eternity past, God had already decided what to do in the history of the world. In my mind, I think, well, one day there was no decree, but then the next day God decided to create the world and have it unfold in the way that it does. Actually, that's wrong. There was a never a moment in time where the decrees did not exist. The decrees have always existed. There has never been a beginning to, do, to the decrees of God. Now that is absolutely mind-blowing. Thirdly, the decrees happen by the most wise counsel of his will. In eternity past, God took counsel with his own wisdom and decided to create this world, this world which reflects the best of all possible worlds, to bring his wisdom the most glory. God's plan is shaped by his holiness. The world that exists now, even if we don't think it, reflects the fact that God is holy, holy, holy. Fifth, the confession states that God's decrees are unchangeable. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Since God is unchanging, his plan is unchanging. Since God is unchangeable, his decrees are unchangeable. God is not reacting to something that happens in history. God is not looking down the corridors of time and saying, Ah, oh, man, I really made a mistake on that one, so I better change my plan. No. His plan is steadfast, sure, and unchanging. Everything that happens now is going exactly according to plan. Everything. Sixthly, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein. Now when we say that God has decreed all things, we mean all things. All things means all things. God has decreed all things, including acts of sin. Does that scare you when I say that? Does that scare you when the confession says that? It shouldn't. Because when we read in scripture that God has decreed all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, all things must mean all things, including acts of sin. God has decreed all things, including acts of sin, without sinning. This means that God decreed the fall, but God did not sin. God decreed the existence of Satan, but God did not sin. God decreed the crucifixion of Christ, but God did not sin. God decreed 9-11, but God did not sin. God decreed Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, but God did not sin. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God decrees all things, including acts of sin, but he is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any sin therein. Now I know what you're thinking. How can that be? 
what is the relationship between the decrees and the will of God and evil in the world? What is the relationship between God and evil in the world? Well, this is usually referred to as the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is usually stated in the form of a logical syllogism. I'm going to read something like this. There are various forms of this. This is just one of them. Premise one, God is all good. Amen? Amen. Premise two, God is all powerful. Amen. Premise three, evil exists. Okay. Conclusion, therefore, because evil exists, an all-good, all-powerful God cannot exist. Now, last week, we saw that open theism teaches that God does not know the future. And in a sense, open theism is an easy cop-out answer to the problem of evil. It's easy for an open theist to say, well, we affirm, premise one, God is all-good. But we reject premise two, God is all-powerful, because after all, God doesn't know the future. God doesn't know what will happen. He's not in control of the future, so he's not responsible for that. In a sense, God is looking at the future, and he's saying, I'm so hands-off that when somebody commits an act of evil, I had nothing to do with that. I didn't know that was going to happen. And perhaps that is why open theism is growing in popularity. Because there's something appealing to that. It's simple. It's easy. It's an easy cop-out answer, is it not? But brothers and sisters, the question is not, is it easy? The question is, is it biblical? It's not biblical. So how do we answer the problem of evil? Let us revise the syllogism. Premise one, God is all good. Premise two, God is all powerful. Premise three, evil exists. Conclusion, therefore, God has a morally sufficient reason for evil to bring about the greatest good and the greatest glory for himself. Scripture teaches that God uses evil to bring about the greatest good and the greatest glory for himself. God receives more glory for himself by using evil than if, he, than if evil never existed. Now, don't take this from me. Take this from Jonathan Edwards. Now, he's a little bit hard to read, so just try to keep, keep track. Edwards says, evil is an evil thing. And yet, it may be a good thing that evil should be in the world. As, for instance, it might be an evil thing to crucify Christ, but yet it was a good thing that the crucifying of Christ came to pass. As man's act, it was evil, but as God ordered it, it was good. And if so, then it is a good thing that that evil comes to pass. When we say the evil is an evil thing in itself, then we mean that it is evil, considering it only within its own bounds. It implies no contradiction to suppose that an act may be an evil act, and yet that it is a good thing that such an act should come to pass. Let me try to boil that down. What Edwards is saying 
is that God can look at evil in the world through two lenses, a narrow angle lens and a wide angle lens. When God looks at evil through the narrow angle lens, when he's looking at the event in isolation as the event just as the event itself, God is angry at the evil. God is wrathful at the evil. God sees the sin and he hates the sin. But when God looks at the sinful event through the wide angle lens, the event and the whole context of eternity, then he sees the good which comes out of it. So when he sees the event in isolation, the sin angers God. But when he sees the good which comes out of it, that pleases God. Let me try to give you an illustration. Hypothetically, let's say a man is driving home and gets into a car accident. Car accident breaks his leg. Now, we would all say, this is evil. This is, this is terrible. This is a bad event. Would we not? But let's say the man goes to the hospital. And while they're taking x-rays of his leg, they incidentally find a cancer in the bone of his leg. Early enough that if they cut it out, they will save his life. Now, would we not all agree that this is a good outcome from a bad event? So through the narrow angle lens, when we look at just the car accident by itself, we would say, this is bad. This is wrong. But when we look at the wide angle lens, the greater good which results from it, we would say, this is good. This is good. Now, Circumstances are almost never as simplistic and straightforward as that, but it illustrates the point. Is the sin evil in itself? Yes, of course. But does God use the evil to bring about a greater good? Yes, he does. And if God decrees the evil to bring about the greatest good, does this mean that God's decree is also good? Yes. Again, the question is, is this not, it's not, is this easy? It's not easy. The question is, is it biblical? And I believe that it is. Just one illustration, biblical illustration. You remember the story of Joseph. Joseph's wicked brothers were acting wickedly, and they sold their brother into slavery. Their own brother, their own flesh and blood. They sold him into slavery. So Joseph gets taken to Egypt, where he rises up through the ranks by preparing for the famine. And years later, Joseph's family comes to Egypt. And Joseph says this to his brothers. Genesis 45.5. Now, actually, before we read these two verses, I want you to keep two things in mind. Number one, God is using evil to bring about a greater good. Number two, God decreed this. God planned for this. God willed this. Genesis 45.5. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You sold me here, but God sent me. Which one is it? It's both. God decreed this. God planned this. God sent me. It was God. It was also you. 
God planned this to preserve life, to bring about a greater good. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says the same thing. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Which one is it? It's both. It's one action with two intentions. It's one event with two intentions. It's one event with two sides of the same action. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God decreed it for good. God planned it for good. Now, I want to point that out because usually we read this verse like this. You meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. Usually that's how we read it, without even thinking about it. You meant it for evil, but God turned it for good. As if God made the best of a situation gone wrong. As if God didn't expect this evil to happen, but he made the best out of it. No. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Scripture says you intended this evil for evil, but God intended this evil for good. Do you see the difference? God intended for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. God planned for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. God decreed for Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. And God did it for a greater good, to preserve life, to preserve Israel, and to preserve the line of the Messiah who would come through the line of Israel. Now in closing... I'd just like to mention a brief point of application. If we learn anything from the story of Joseph, it is that we must have a corporate view of the decrees of God for our life. God allowed, God decreed this evil to happen to Joseph to preserve many people alive, to preserve Joseph's family, to preserve the nation of Israel, to preserve the line of the Messiah. Now, what that means is that this didn't just happen for Joseph's good. It did happen for Joseph's good, but it didn't just happen for Joseph's good. This happened for the good of Joseph's family. This happened for the good of the nation of Israel. This happened so that the Messiah could come to be the savior of the world. This happened not just for Joseph's good, but brothers and sisters, this event in the Bible happened for our good our good. In the year 2018, in America, so that we would be saved by the Messiah who had come through the line of Israel. Sometimes we can focus so much on ourselves. Brothers and sisters, God is bringing good out of the trials in your life for you. That is true, 100% but maybe it's not just for you. What good is God bringing to me? Well, how do you know that God is not bringing good to someone else from the trials in your life? How do you know that God is not bringing good to other people, to the church, corporately, by the trials in your life? 
one of my dearest friends, we'll call him Steve, went through a great trial. Steve was a solid Christian. He lived in another country. He had a great job, great career. He was a deacon in his church, a very godly man. He married a woman that he loved. This woman gave birth to a child that he thought was his. It turns out the child did not belong to him. She was an adulteress. She left the church. She left the faith. She left Steve and divorced him. He went through a great trial. Ten years later, he moved to America. Got a new career, an even better one. Now he's remarried. He has three beautiful children. And again, he's a deacon in his church. God used evil to bring good to Steve's life. But not just Steve. At his church here in America, a few years after he moved here, a few years after he got married, remarried, there was a man in the church whose wife left him. She left the faith. She left the church. She ran off with an old boyfriend. She divorced that man. Guess who was there to comfort and console and minister to this man? Steve was. Two years after that, another man, a different man in the church, his wife left him, ran off with another man, left the faith, left the church, and guess who was there to minister to this man? Steve was. See, God used an evil in Steve's life to bring about a greater good, not just for Steve, but for an entire local church 15 years later, halfway around the world. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a corporate view of our suffering. Maybe God is planning to use your trial not just to benefit you, but to benefit someone else. We need to open our eyes to the decrees of God, not just for us, but for everyone around us. For God is working all things for good to those, to all those who love him, to all those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, these things are difficult. They are tough to grasp. But Lord, we trust in the goodness of God. That as your scripture says, God is good and does good. We trust in the power of God. That you, O oh Lord, have decreed all things according to the counsel of your will. And that you are using all things for our good and for your glory. Help us, O oh God, to trust this, to know this, to live this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.